Welcome to Christ Chapel College, the college outreach of Christ Chapel Bible Church in Fort Worth, Texas. We hope everyone experiences what Jesus calls abundant life. So we unapologetically point to Him as the source of life and joy. If you're a college student in the Fort Worth area, we'd be stoked to connect with you. Find out more at ChristChapelCollege.org and on Instagram at ChristChapelCollege. Good morning. How we doing? Good deal. Hope everybody is uh, refreshed. Uh, let's go Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12 will be hanging out there this morning. So um, yesterday, me and my wife drove to Oklahoma uh, to meet the newest member of our family. Uh, I'll show you a little photo. This is Gus. Uh, Gus is our new little Bernadoodle. Yep, he is the cutest. Um, so we are absolutely in love. But uh, as, as we were driving there yesterday, I like, noticed this, this pattern. I mean, it was, it was a great day. We're just road tripping, hanging out, um, me and my uh, wife. And, and as we're driving along, I, I noticed that we just say the word love like all day. Right, so like we're driving and we're just you know playing random songs on Spotify, and it's like, oh, I love this song, right? And then we meet Gus, and instantaneously we're like, oh my gosh, I love Gus, like I love this dog, he's amazing, right? And then we are driving back, and we have this incredible meal for lunch, and we're like, oh my gosh, I love this restaurant, I love this food, I love this neighborhood, and we drive back, and right as we're going to bed, I, I say, hey, I love you to my wife, and and when I was thinking about that, what I realize is that I just used the exact same word to describe my affection for uh, levitating by Dua Lipa, um, which, come on, that sounds incredible, right? Uh, the same word for my affection for Gus, my same the same word for my affection for a piece of pizza, uh, the same word for my affection for a neighborhood, and the same word for my affection towards my wife. Now, immediately, we should all agree that the word love in our culture is kind of a junk drawer word, right? Like, like we don't exactly know what that word means, or our culture at least does not have like a clear definition of what the word love means, right? Because if I can love all of those things, and, and obviously I don't have the same type of affection for all of those things, then, then what does that mean? Yet we are a culture obsessed with love. Like we we, we crave love, we want love, we pine for love, we sing about love, we love love, yet we don't actually know what it means. I mean, if, 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 if I were to go to each of you individually and say, hey, just, just define for me what the word love means, my guess is we would have just a flurry of different definitions of what that word actually means. Now, that's a problem for us as followers of Jesus. Because Jesus is very clear in, in John 14 that um, if people are, are going to associate us with him, if, if people are going to know that we are his disciples, the way that they know that is based on the way that we love, right? Like our whole being as apprentices to Jesus is marked by the way that we love God and the way that we love others. And so the question is, how do we do that? If we have no clear definition of what that looks like and what that means, then how on earth do we fulfill that without a clear definition? 
Well, the good news is that while our culture may not have a clear definition of what love is, our God does. And so God has graciously laid out for us what it looks like to be people of love. And so what I want to do today is figure out what that looks like. I want us to have a very clear definition of what love is so that when Jesus says, hey, go love people, go love the Lord your God, go love your neighbor, that, that, that that's not a confusing thing to us, that we know exactly what that means. And so that's where we're going today. In fact, Paul's premise for us in, in verse 9 of chapter 12 is this. He says, let love be genuine. Let love be genuine. That is a, a word, like, it, it just means to be authentic, right? In the Greek, that, that is a word that um, specifically means unhypocritical. And so, so all of our text today is based on that premise, that statement right there of calling us to be people that love in a genuine, real, authentic Way. And so um, just a little roadmap for us. Um, Paul is going to essentially give us kind of five characteristics of what authentic, genuine love looks like. And, and so my, my hope for today is just that as we read, um, we can just take an internal look and say, okay, how am I doing? As, as a follower of Christ who is called to love, how am I doing with this definition of love? And so uh, we'll, we'll just jump straight in. The first characteristic that, that we'll see in this passage is that love is marked by commitment. The authentic, genuine love is marked by commitment. Um, Paul goes on to say uh, in verse 10, he says, Love one another with brotherly affection. Love one another with brotherly affection. Now, um, that word brotherly is very important. Right, because it's a very specific type of affection. This is a brotherly, a familial affection. Right? And if you think about fa family, right, what separates the love of family compared to the love of every other relationship that you have? Well, it's the fact that it's committed. It's the fact that they're devoted. It's the fact that ideally they don't go anywhere. Right? And I'm even sensitive to say it because I understand that a lot of us, we have families that, that, that don't model this type of love well. But the love of family that, that God has kind of laid out, the ideal, is that when you approach them, when, when you just lay your dirtiest, darkest secrets before them, you cannot scare them off. You cannot inconvenience them to the place where they just bail on you. A, a brotherly affection, a brotherly love is a love that's committed, it's devoted, it's not going anywhere. It's saying there's nothing that you could tell me that would make me run in the opposite direction. And so when it comes to this idea of love and, and what it looks like for our love to be authentic and a genuine love, it means that we are committed to the people that we are in relationship with. That your friends, your family, the people that you are in connection with, that, that when that they feel, one, a safety to just bring their junk to you, but you have a posture that communicates, and I don't care what you've done. I don't care who you are, there's nothing that you can tell me that will send me running in the other way. Because I am committed, I am devoted. Right? So, so the first thing we see is that love is marked by commitment, this brotherly, familial affection. And so I'll ask you, like, as we go, go along, like, how, are you, how are you doing with that? Would people look at your love and say, man, that person is so committed? person is so devoted. Like I, I know that that is a person that I can come to and they will never leave me. I think there's so many wounds in our world by people saying, hey, I love you. And then they leave. 
I love you, and then they bail. If you can say, I love you, but there's no commitment attached to it, it's not love. It's not authentic love because love is marked by commitment. But here's the second thing that Paul points out to us, is that love makes people feel valued. The love makes people feel valued. He says next in verse, in verse 10, he says, Outdo one another in showing honor. Outdo one another in showing honor. Um, when I first read this verse, I, I immediately thought of this scene in the office where uh, Dwight and Andy get into this like, competition of like, who can do the nicest thing. And so Dwight buys bagels for the whole office, and so Andy one-ups him and caters tacos for lunch. And it just kind of escalates, and they just keep doing nice things for each other. And, and that's what I kind of initially thought of. I was like, oh, like outdo one another in showing honor. That means like one-up each other in doing nice things, right? But the reality is that what Paul is asking us to do here runs much deeper than that. This, this idea of outdoing one another and showing honor is much deeper than simply just trying to one-up each other with doing nice things, right? Because this idea that people are worthy of honor is, is a deeply theological concept that, that runs back all the way to the creation account. When, when you see that, that how God created the world, there's, there's one very specific thing that takes place. You and I, God creates humans as the only aspect of creation that bear his image, the only aspect of creation created in the image of God. And because we are created in the image of God, we instinctually have this worth and value that is separate from the rest of creation. That you and I are, are worthy of value and, and, and honor and dignity and respect. Um, Matt Chandler has this, I think, this brilliant brilliant illustration where, where he explains this. He says that, you know, his family, he has his wife, he has his three kids, he has a dog, and he has a horse. He said, if, if, if my whole world were, were just to come unraveled financially, right, and I just needed some, some extra cash, who do I get rid of? He's like, we can all agree that the debate's between the dog or the horse, right? But it's not my wife and it's not my kids, even though, he's like, my wife is way more expensive than all the rest of them. Right? So like if we're just talking financially, she has to go. Right? But we know instinctually, and in no way, if, if our financial world came unraveled, would the wife or the kids have to go? Why? Because there's an inherent worth and value that they possess because they are created in the image of God. Not, not that the horse and the dog don't have value, but it's different. It is distinct. Right? And, and so this is a deeply, deeply theological idea. Right? That, that, that because you and I have been created in the image of God, we have an inherent worth and value that requires honor. And, and so what this looks like in our own lives is that when people interact with you, do they walk away feeling valued? Do they walk away thinking, oh my gosh, that person made me feel like I matter? That person made me feel like I actually am, am worth something. If, if we truly understand that, that every single person has been created in the image of God and is therefore worthy of honor and dignity and respect, we should interact with people in a way that just makes them feel like the only person on the planet. Just so respected, so honored, so valued. And so the question has been, is that us? Is that us? Like, do... do from, from the cashier at Einstein's to the people at the Blue, 
to your baristas, to your friends, to the people in your fraternities, your sororities, your family, and everybody in between. When, when, when people leave a conversation with you, are they walking away saying, I feel so valued when I'm in that person's presence. They make me feel honored. Because if not, then our love is not authentic. Authentic, genuine love means that when people leave our presence, they feel valued. And can I just say on a side note, I think this is unbelievably important uh, for us in like dating culture. I think there's, there's this weird phenomenon when we start dating where we believe that the goal is for them to see how valuable we are instead of us showing them how valuable they are. And so maybe if like you're kind of you know, in the dating scene and you're trying to figure out, like, why isn't this working? Um, maybe it's because you are spending way too much time trying to show them your value when in reality all that we're called to do is to show others how valuable they are. So when you're dating, when you're at a party, when you're talking, when you're texting, when you're doing all these things, is the person that you're in relationship with, are they telling their friends, wow, that guy, wow, that girl, they just make me feel so worthy and so valued. I mean, that's a drastically different type of relationship. So even in like the dating scene, we should love people in a way um, that makes them feel valued. Um, but third is this. Paul says that authentic, genuine love is patient. That an authentic, genuine love is patient. In verse 12, he says this. He says, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, and be constant in prayer. Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. Oftentimes, I've seen this verse taken out of context to just be applied to general trials and general hard, hard times. And while this is true, um, that in those general times of trial, we should rejoice in hope. We should be patient. We should be constant in, in prayer. Contextually, this is falling in this idea of relationship. Paul is talking about this in the middle of what it looks like to be loving and to be in relationship with other people. And so the reason why Paul is bring, bringing this up right here is because if you've been in a relationship for more than 30 seconds, you know that relationships are difficult. Relationships can be hard. It's so easy, or it's so easy to, to be in a place where we just misunderstand each other, where we just kind of like just ships in the night, where we just don't understand, where we accidentally wound each other. And in those moments, our natural inclination is to distance ourselves. It's to separate. It's not to reconcile. It's to separate and create distance. And what Paul is saying is that, man, if we are marked by love, by genuine love, that it means that in the moments when this relationship seems hopeless, when reconciliation seems hopeless, we rejoice and we have hope that it can be reconciled. It means that when, when things are difficult and hard and everything in you just wants to quit, that we're patient. That we're patient enough to work it out and that we are constant prayer, that we are prayerful, that, that, that God can do something beautiful in what's going on. But the reality is that's so much easier said than done, right? It's so much easier said than done to be patient because sometimes we just, it's just hard, it's just difficult and we just want to leave. But when you encounter a difficult relationship, if you're just quick to bail, if you are too impatient to see what God can do as far as restoration and reconciliation, then your love is not authentic. I was thinking earlier about um, some of just the relational drama that took place when I was in college, the 
drama with roommates, the you stole my boyfriend drama, and everything in between. Um, and I remember there was, there was one specific situation that, that still to this day, 10 years later, breaks my heart, where two of my friends just had a misunderstanding, and they, well, one just bailed, just was not patient enough to work it out. And, and to see how, how that created this rift, where five, 10 years later, we're at weddings, and they can't even make eye contact. They can't even be in the same room because they were just too impatient to actually work it out and see what God could do. That breaks my heart. And so, and I don't know where you are. I don't know if you have, you know, stuff with roommates or stuff with friends or stuff with people in organizations that are just like annoying and difficult and just hard. The question is, I mean, are you patient enough to say, all right, I'm hopeful that restitution can take place. I'm patient enough to work it out. I'm prayerful that God can do something beautiful in this. Because if that's your posture, then that is a genuine, authentic view of love. But fourth is this. Paul says that love results in action. That genuine, authentic love results in action. Check out verse 13. It says, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. So um, true, authentic love is committed, right? It is patient. It makes people feel valued, but it also results in action. It means that, that there's, there's a, a, a part of it that we just do something to show externally what's happening internally, right? And the example that Paul gives here is that, man, this is the thing that results in action, specifically that we show hospitality, and we're generous, that we seek to, to meet the needs of fellow believers, and we show hospitality. Um, and that is one of the easiest ways to show people true, authentic love, right? that we're generous. So we are generous not just with you know, money and our cash, but that we are generous with our time, with our resources. We're generous with our attention. You want to make someone feel loved in our current day and age? Slow down long enough to make eye contact. Slow down long enough to listen with your face. Slow down long enough to have a conversation where you're not looking at your phone or looking at your watch or looking over your shoulder or doing the thing, right? Slow down long enough just to have a face-to-face conversation and say, hey, what's going on? Like, man, I, I would just love to hear, yeah, I got, I got 10 minutes here. I would love to hear what's going on. Being generous with our attention and our time, it's one of the easiest ways to make people feel loved, just to be present, right? And like hospitality, man, it's so easy to be hospitable in our culture. It doesn't mean that you have to like bring people over and have some giant feast, some you know, giant thing. It's just, just a welcoming people into your life, just inviting people to be a part of what God's doing in your life, to just bring them in, to invite them in. Um, whenever I was in college, there was a, a mentor of mine that he and his wife, their, their house was just a revolving door of college kids. I mean, at, like, kids were just coming in and out all the time. Um, they would host these, like, massive pancake breakfasts during finals week, and um, it seemed like they mentored, like, 600 kids. It was unbelievable. And, and they just really took me and my roommates in in some really special ways. And so um, one, one day out of the blue, we're like, dude, they have fed us, like, 400 meals. Like, they, they feed us all the time. 
let's just see if they want to come over to our house for dinner. So we invited uh, this guy and his wife and their three kids to our, like, nasty, janky college house. And we th- put some, like, $3, $3 clearance rack Kroger beef, you know, on the grill. And we just made the nastiest burgers possible. And we probably did didn't even have ketchup or mustard. It was just, here's a bun and a burger. Here you go, right? And honestly, I don't even think we cleaned our house. It was, it was gross. But they came over, and we just hung out in our nasty house and fed them nasty old ground beef. Not very hospitable when you really think about it. But the next week, he gave me a call, and he said, hey, you know what, dude? In all of our years of mentoring college students, Y'all are the very first kids that have ever invited us over. You're the very first group of dudes that has ever invited us into your house and wanted to feed us. And I just want to say, man, we felt so loved by that. That was just so hospitable, right? The fact that they could leave our home probably concerned that their kids now have staph infection (laughs) and still say, we felt so loved shows that it doesn't take all that much to be hospitable. It doesn't take that much to be generous. And what Paul is saying is that, yes, our love is committed. Our love, makes, our love makes people feel worthy. Our love is patient when things are hard. But it also results in action. It results in actually stepping out and doing things that make people feel loved. So that's number four. Now, at this point, you may be thinking, okay, I can do a lot of that, um, especially with those that I'm friendly with, especially fellow believers, especially those that I'm tight, tight with. Like, I can probably do a lot of that. But what about people that are really hard to love? What about the people that have hurt me or stabbed me in the back or wounded me? What about the pe- people that are just honestly so hard to love? Am I actually called to love them too? Um, great question. Short answer, yes. Long answer is this. One of the, I think, really interesting things about the scriptures is that our God is clear that we as believers are going to have enemies in our life, which, which kind of threw me for a loop for a while um, because I was under this impression that the more that I look like Jesus, uh, the more people would like me, right? That makes sense, right? The more that I look like Christ, the more people will like me. The irony of that is that Jesus was perfect and he got murdered, right? So Jesus had plenty of enemies, um, but even like guys like King David, who was called a man after God's own heart. And if you read the Psalms, they are full of him writing out just the pain that he experiences from these people that just don't like him. I mean, David was stabbed in the back over and over, and he writes things like, God, I have all these enemies. God, will you do something, right? As weird as it may sound, the scriptures are clear that we will have enemies. There will be people that just will not like you. But even in that, our call is to love our enemies. Is to have an authentic, genuine love for our enemies. And that's what Paul goes on to write about in this next section. But let me um, read 14 through 21 to you. And then we'll kind of break it down. Paul says this, he says, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay repay no one evil for evil, 
but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head, which is, this sounds dramatic. That means that he'll be like repentant. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. All right, so, so there is a lot here. But if I could summarize what Paul is saying in this, I'd, I'd say the authentic love looks like this, that we love our enemies and let God handle the rest. We love our enemies and let God handle the rest. Because look what Paul is saying. This is, this is profound stuff. First, he says that we bless those who persecute us, that we bless those. Now, um, this idea of blessing, right, um, the Greek word here is eulageo, which is the word that we get eulogy from, right? And it's a word that means to praise. So like if you think, think about a funeral, right, a eulogy is the opportunity to praise the person that has passed away, right? It's a praising ceremony, right? No one walks into a funeral and goes, what a jerk, am I right? Glad that he's gone. No, like that would be so offensive, right? Like, like, like it's a nervous laughter because that is so highly offensive, right? Why? Because we know that when we go and we to a funeral, we, we praise them, right? It's a eulogy. We praise them. We bless them. And so, the, and so the imagery here is that Paul is saying, hey, those who have persecuted you, those that have hurt you, yeah, you praise them. You bless them. You speak highly of them. You do not throw them under the bus, right? You, you let your words, because again, they are created in the image of God. They are worthy of honor and dignity and respect. So you praise them. You speak highly of them which is crazy in our culture. But he doesn't just say to praise them. He says that, that, that they're also called to weep with them, right? He says next, he says that we rejoice with those who rejoice and we weep with those who weep, right? I think that what is so interesting about this verse is the context of it. Like he just said that, that you bless those that persecute, that you bless and that you do not curse. And then he immediately starts talking about weeping with people who weep. And so he's implying that even if those who persecute you, even if those that don't like you, even if those that, that have wound, wounded you, if they begin to weep, you weep right alongside them. If they rejoice, you rejoice alongside them. But again, if, if they weep, you don't, you don't celebrate their sorrow. You don't celebrate their sorrow. You don't wish ill upon them. No, you weep alongside them. You grieve as they grieve. Why? Because that's authentic love. That we praise them not because we're being fake, but we praise them because they're worthy of honor. They're worthy of dignity and respect. And then when they hurt, we hurt as well. When they rejoice, we rejoice with them. It's absolutely countercultural. And everything else that he says here, he says, you know, we live in harmony. We uh, do everything in our power to live peaceably. That we're not divisive. We're not trying to be these types of people like the rest of the world. That there's a, a harmony and a unity and a peace that marks us even when we feel like we're under attack. But then check out what he says in verse 17. And I think this is just the kicker. He says that we 
leave vengeance to the Lord. We leave vengeance to the Lord. Now, here's why I think that's so important for us. So often, we want to be the judge. We want to be the judge, especially if we have been hurt in some way. If someone has hurt you, if someone has wounded you, or wounded someone that you love, there's something in us that says, like, that's not right. Like, that is not okay. Like, someone has to answer for that. What God is saying is, yes, and they will answer for it. But not by you. You are not the judge. Your job is to love and leave the rest to God. Because make no mistake, like God will be the judge. Like God will take care of that. You just love. You praise. You bless. You feed them when they're hungry. You give them drink when they're thirsty. You weep when they weep. You rejoice when they rejoice. You, you do that. You handle that part, and God will handle the rest. Now, let's be real. If a roommate has stabbed you in the back, if a friend has gossiped about you, if someone that said they loved you cheated on you, to just love them anyway, like that's, that's hard. Those are legitimate wounds. And it is so natural, so human to say, no, that's not right. And they need to answer for that. They need to pay for that. And the good news of the gospel is that they will answer to that. But you and I are not, not the judge. But we do serve a God who is. So if there's any doubt about whether our God takes sin seriously, if there's ever any doubt that God takes wounding people seriously, just look at the cross. Because on the cross, God poured out his wrath on sin. God made it abundantly clear that sin does not go unpunished. The cross reminds us that our God is a God of justice. Or as Tim, Tim Keller says, he says, the gospel promises us justice and reminds us that we are not the ones who give it. That we are not the ones who give it. Our job is to simply love our enemies, to love those who persecute us, to bless those, and let God handle the rest. And the best part about this is that we have a phenomenal model and what it looks like to love our enemies well and to leave the rest to God. I think that we oftentimes forget um, that Jesus wasn't all that stoked to go to the cross. Um, if you look at the, the scene in the garden right before he was betrayed, the gospel accounts tell us that he is sitting there and he is praying and he's saying, God, is there, is there any other way? God, is there any other way out? Is, is there any other way that we can do this? And the text says that he began to sweat drops of blood, which on a side note, that's a, an actual medical condition called hematidrosis. And it's this rare medical condition when, where, where people who, who are under great stress, the, the capillaries in their blood vessels burst and, and blood begins to mix with sweat. And they legitimately sweat Blood, it's most commonly found in death row inmates awaiting, awaiting execution. So the gravity of what Jesus understood was coming for him. 
was that crucifixion was humiliating. It was barbaric. It was an absolutely brutal way to die. And he's begging God, God, is there any other way to do this? Is there any other way to pay for the sins of the world? Yet he goes to the cross humbly and quietly. And as he is like nailed to the cross, as he is hanging on the cross, naked and bleeding, watching his own creation mock him and spit on him, with what little breath he had left, he uttered the words. He said, Father, forgive them because they have no idea what they're doing. You, you want to talk about loving your enemies? Imagine our Savior on the cross, his own creation turning their back on him and his dying breath is, hey, forgive them because they don't know what's happening. They don't know what they're doing. And that is the model that we have. That our Savior loved his enemies and let God handle the rest. Peter says this in, in 1 Peter 2. He says, when he, meaning Jesus, was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. The picture that we see on the cross is Jesus loving his enemies, literally loving those that persecuted him and leaving the rest to God. So I don't know what you brought in the room. I don't know if spring break was rough, if it was good, if you kind of where your relationships are. Man, but if you have some relational tension, or there's some enemies in your life and you just don't quite know how to handle it, and take heart that our God says, man, if your love is to be authentic, as hard as this is, as hard as this may sound, it means loving your enemies, letting God handle the rest. The reality of our situation is our culture has no clear definition of what it means to love. Again, we love love. We paint it all over buildings. We sing about it. We tweet about it. We post about it. But no one has a clear definition of what it is or what it means or what you do, but our God does. And he has been gracious enough to say, let me lay it out for you. Let me give you a map of what love actually looks like. And so my challenge for you this, this, this week is just to go through this list of five things. Say, all right, how, how am I doing? Where am I? And am I committed? But people look at my love and say, man, that person is so devoted and committed and they're not going anywhere. What a, a safe person. Is it being valued? Do, do people walk away from you thinking, man, I feel so worthy and so treasured. Like that person makes me feel treasured. Like that's crazy. Is it patient? Do people look at your life and think, man, that person just digs and they're patient and they don't bail when things get hard. Is it loving your enemies? Is it this idea that, that, man, even in moments when people have hurt you, that you bless them, that you praise them, that you speak highly of them? And is it in action? Is it, 
is the fruit of your life this, this action that makes people see how loved they actually got? I don't know. But, man, I would encourage you to walk through those things and figure out, where am I? And just imagine for a second. Imagine for a second how radical it would be if this campus got a clear definition of love. Imagine what could take place if the people on this campus saw a people who took this definition of love seriously and thought, man, God's doing something. I don't know what it is. Maybe they, they can't even attribute it to God, but they know that they feel valued. They know that they have friends that are fiercely loyal. They are blown away by the idea of someone who has every right, culturally speaking, every right to throw them under the bus, yet chooses to speak highly of them. What a breath of fresh air that would be for this campus. If a groom full of people decided that they were going to radically redefine what love is by what God says, my hope is that we can be those people. My hope is that we can change the definition of what love looks like for the campus around us and bring glory and honor to the Lord in the process. Let me pray. God, you are um, gracious to us in the fact that you don't uh, leave us guessing. There's a great clarity in the way that you define love for us, God. That we don't pick and choose, we don't try to figure out what feels good. But you have laid out for us what it looks like to love and to love well. And so, Father, my hope is that we can be a people that are countercultural in the way that we love. We are countercultural in the way that we uh, interact with those around us. And so, God, in the moments when we, to be honest, just don't want to, in the moments when we fall short, in the moments when it's hard to do what you've called us to, God, will you empower us? Through the power of your Holy Spirit, God, will you give us the ability to love in a way that points to you, to love in a way that, that tells others that we follow Jesus? May our love be a blessing to every single person that we interact with, God. All for your glory and honor. We love you. Let's turn something to pray. Amen.